The 100 Years' War, the de Guesclin period, English shipping problems, 1372. Now, Jean de Montfort's position in Brittany deteriorated rapidly during the winter of 1371-72. The siege of Boucherelle was still continuing. A succession of inconclusive embassies passed between Paris and Vienne, in which each side aired the grievances built up over the past three years, and John sought to fend off French intervention in his duchy. But however desperate he was for military assistance, John de Montfort was not prepared to accept it on the demeaning terms offered by Edward III's ministers. The surrender of twelve fortresses of the English would have discredited him in the eyes of his subjects. John also thought rightly, as it turned out, that the English were at least as keen to get a foothold in Brittany as he was to have their support, and that better inducements would be offered if he held out for them. Neville and Barry must have reached Vienne about the time of the beginning of December 1371 with the council's proposals. They were obliged to call for more convenient instructions. The broad lines of an agreement only emerged in the course of February of 1372 after the Great Council had resolved upon an invasion of Brittany and Edward's ministers had become anxious about the timetable. Edward's ambassadors were authorized to drop all of their more objectionable demands. The Duke was promised an advance guard of 600 men to defend the duchy against the French. He was given the ultimate control over their operations. The demand for the surrender of ports and castles was abandoned. Instead, the English agreed to surrender on demand any places that they occupied in the courses of the campaign. The price paid for John's alliance was increased. He was now to have the honor of Richmond restored to him and complete release of his debts to Edward III. In return for all this, the Duke would be expected to allow the English king's host to land in the duchy and use it as a base from which to invade France. John de Montfort himself was expected to contribute a thousand men-at-arms of his own for the venture. After four months in Brittany, Neville and Barry returned to England. They reported to the council on about March the 28th. They found Edward III's ministers preoccupied with the problems of shipping and coastal defense. England's island position made her uniquely dependent upon being able to deploy very large fleets of transports and escort ships, which had to be requisitioned from commercial ship owners. The limiting factors in the planning of any overseas expedition were the availability of ships and seamen and the length of the sea voyage. Shipping an army to Brittany across more than 200 miles of sea was much more difficult of an undertaking than crossing the channel to Calais as Edward III might have recalled from his first campaign there, 30 years before. In 1342, at least 440 ships had been re requisitioned to carry an army of about 7,000 men to the peninsula. Most of the ships had had to perform the passage twice, and even so, about 1,400 men had been left behind. The whole process had taken three months from the time the ships were assembled. The army of 1346, which was probably 14,000 strong, had crossed to the Contine in one passage, but that needed 750 ships to do it. The transport of armies to Gascony was more difficult. The English had never succeeded in shipping more than 3,000 mounted men across the Bay of Biscay in one go, even when they controlled its entire coastline. According to the complaints of the commons at the end of 1372, the growing difficulty which the English encountered in transporting their armies to the continent was due to a serious decline of their merchant marine. The evidence, although incomplete, bears this out. 
1347, Edward III had deployed 737 ships for the epic siege of Calais, the largest English fleet for which there is reliable evidence in the whole medieval period. Of these ships, 682 were requisitioned merchantmen, and the rest were either the king's or chartered in from abroad. By comparison, in the early 1370s, the admirals, with much more effort and barrel scraping, were able to requisition about a third of this number, between 200 and 250 ocean-going hulls. Moreover, their advantage-carrying capacity, although larger than it had been in the early years of Edward III, was still too small for effective use as transports. The shipowners of Venice, Genoa, and the Biscay ports of Castile routinely traded vessels of 300 tons burden and upwards, but the merchant fleet which carried John of Gaunt to Calais in 1369 at 255 hulls, the largest that the English assembled in this period, included only eight vessels of more than 200 tons burden. Seventy percent of the requisitioned merchantmen were under 100 tons. The comparatively small size of the English ship posed several problems in an age of all-mounted armies. Large numbers of horses had to be shipped, generally one for an archer and three for each men-at-arms. They had to be stowed below deck in dismantleable wooden pens. The English ships were designed for carrying bulk cargoes in deep holds and only had limited deck space, which made them particularly unsuitable for carrying passengers with animals. In the early years of Edward's reign, the average carrying capacity of the English ships had been no more than about 18 to 20 men with their horses per hull. In the later years of the century, it was between 20 and 30 men with horses depending on the length of the sea passage. This meant that it took between 4 and 6 tons of cargo capacity to carry one man and his horse. Most of this was for the horses. Up to 6 times as many men could be carried if the horses were not required or were found at the destination. The supply of seamen proved that the as critical as the supply ships. Medieval merchant ships were labor-intensive. The English had been forced by shortage of manpower to abandon the earlier practice of sending ships to sea with double crews working in shifts. But as a broad generalization, even with single crews, they needed at least one crewman for every four tons of carrying capacity. Crewing ratios were higher on the smaller ships. Unlike soldiers who were recruited almost entirely from volunteers, the seamen serving on requisition ships were conscripted men. They were obtained by press gangs working their way along the coast from port to port, clearing the menfolk from coastal villages and towns. The administrative records of the 1370s are full of imprecations hurled at harassed officials complaining about the slow and inadequate results produced by the press gangs. For all their efforts, the returns diminished with the fortunes of the English merchant shipping generally. More than 13,300 English seamen had manned the fleet of 1347, yet the largest number of seamen raised at one time in this period was just over 5,000 men, and that in 1369. The ship owners of England repeatedly petitioned Parliament for a solution to their woes, and the commons took up their cause almost every session. They pointed to requisitioning and impressment as the main cause of the destruction of their fortune. It had led, they said, to the decline of English merchant marine and the abandonment of seafaring life by growing numbers of young men. These claims oversimplified a complex problem, for other factors were also at work, including the general contraction of England's foreign trade and the devastating impact of the bubonic plague on English coastal communities. But the commons' diagnosis is plausible. 
On average, a large ocean-going merchant ship represented an investment of about 500 pounds, which had to be recovered over the relatively short life of a wooden clinker-built ship. Requisition ships were taken without hire or any other form of compensation, often for long periods. They served for at least four months in 1369 and 1370, and would serve for six in 1372. This represented a heavy annual tax on England's ship owners, which in longer term reduced their profits and inhibited investment in new ships. Seamen, unlike ship owners, were paid by a rate that was low. Moreover, until the system was changed in 1373, paid time ran only from the date when the operations began. The weeks and sometimes months which seamen passed in port waiting for orders were in principle entirely unpaid. In 1372, one group of 620 West Countrymen seamen complained that they had been kept idle without pay from April to July awaiting orders. We know this because the king made them an ex gratia payment and which recorded on their accounts. But their experience was fairly common and others in their position did not get anything. There is a good deal of anecdotal evidence of resistance to war service amongst seamen, who escaped from the ports in growing numbers as the king's sergeants approached and occasionally tried to fight them off by main force. In 1372, the admiral's officers encountered serious resistance in the ports. Although the evidence is sparse, there seems to have been something approaching a strike in the west of England. By the end of March, after two months of effort, the ports from the Thames to Bristol appeared to have produced fewer than 50 ships between them. The masters and the crews were reported to be breaking their bonds and escaping the sea to fish or trade. Determined efforts had been made since the previous year to obtain fully manned galleys from the Republic of Genoa, the only source of such ships which were not already beholding to France. Early in 1371, Edward III had taken into his service an Italian by the name of Jacobo Provana, who offered to negotiate an agreement with the Genoese. He left England in the spring, carrying the enormous sum of 9,500 pounds to cover advances to the shipmaster. Provana was kind of a shadowy adventurer to whom the English government often turned in order to make up for its ignorance of Italian affairs, but he was not an ideal choice. He was a Piedmontese nobleman and a stranger to the turbulent and clannish politics of Genoa. He also had the misfortune to begin his task just after a revolution which had brought a new plebeian government to the power in Genoa. Provana's contracts were with the ousted patrician opposition. In December of 1371, he concluded a treaty in Florence with two prominent patrician politicians from Genoa, Antonio Fresci and Marco Grimaldi both of whom were at war with the current government of the Republic. They promised to furnish eight to ten war galleys for four months in the summer of 1372. Provana promised them generous advances and mobilization fees in addition to a substantial monthly hire once they reached England. Some of this may even have been paid, but the agreement was never implemented, probably because of the failure of the Freshies' plan to seize power in Genoa was clear that by March of 1372 that the Genoese were not coming. Then the English turned to help further to Bayonne. At the end of the month, an agent was sent to hire carracks and ocean-going barges urgently for the king's service. At about the end of April 1372, the English government became aware that the French and their Castilian allies were preparing a major naval campaign. The precise nature of their plan was still unclear, but it was assumed there would be large-scale coastal raids against southern England. 
On April the 26th, orders went out to array men for Coast Guard duty and to make beacons on hilltops along Kent Coast. The ships of the sink ports were sent out to patrol off the Kent coast. All this seriously aggravated the Admiral's difficulty in finding shipping for three continental campaigns. On May the 10th and the 11th, the current demands on available shipping were reviewed at a two-day session of the Council at Westminster, attended by all the King's principal advisors. The special arrangements for the defense of the coast hitherto limited to Kent, were extended now to Surrey and Sussex. It was decided to try and concentrate on dispatching smaller forces planned for the continent. The Earl of Pembroke left at once for Plymouth. His shipping needs were very modest, about 15 vessels, but they would not be met until the well in the June. Another 8 to 10 vessels would be needed to carry the small corps destined for Portugal. The advance guard of 600 men-at-arms, which had been promised to John de Montfort, was being put together under the command of, of the steward of Edward III's household, Sir John Neville, the ambassador's elder brother. Thirty to forty ships would be needed to carry them. Unfortunately, there were not enough ships even for the modest task force, let alone the 6,000 men that the king proposed to lead into Brittany. A fresh round of requisitioning was then ordered. Agents were sent to hire ships on the continent in, in Holland and Zealand. The king still clung to the hopes that the main expedition might embark by mid-June. So shipping is a real mess for the English at this particular time. And the next thing that's going to happen is our old friend Owen of Wales is going to show up. Now the sources for this, The Hundred Years' War, The Chronicles by Froissart, The Hundred Years' War by Perrois, The Hundred Years' War by Nylans, and The Hundred Years' War, The House Divided, Volume 3 by Sumption. So I hope you enjoyed that, and as always, don't forget to come by the website, summahistorica.com or historyaccordingtobob.com, and ask a question, leave a comment, check out our merchandise, and if you like what we're doing, please feel free to support us. Thank you very much.